This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this week, Paul Jaceley. I'm filling in for the usual host, the astonishing Mike Rappin, but I'm not alone. I'm joined by two of my favorite people to discuss comic books with, Kara Shamborski. Hey. And Nick White. What's up? Uh, thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, this would be a fun episode. This is one of our regular question and answer episodes. So I figured I would start the show by asking the two most important questions there are. How have you been doing? What comics have you read? Let's start with you, Kara. I have been moving for the third time in a year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a third time? Fourth time. Wait. Wow. Moved out to oh California, then moved again, then moved again. No, this is my fourth time in a year. Because sure. the Bay Area is a transient area, and people move <laughs> all the time if they are not making tech money. <laughs> so that makes sense. And even yeah. if they're making tech money, sometimes uh, it's it's fun. So I'm surrounded by my mostly unpacked boxes, but I've like unpacked to the point where I have no more storage space. So I need to hit Ikea tomorrow and find some kind of solution because right now all of my books are just sitting in tote bags on the floor and I'm like, this is no way for you to live. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, but it's good so far. I've got my own like, se- I'm in like a suite with my own separate entrance, this backyard and there's like lemon trees hanging over from the neighbor's properties. Ah, it's so picturesque. It's so much nicer yeah, from sounds, my last place. That sounds lovely. Splendid. Oh, uh, in terms of comics... I have been on a Sabrina kick after the Mm -hmm. Netflix debut of season one of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina because Mm -hmm. I wanted to like that show so badly. You guys know how I feel about Archie comics. You know how I feel about these properties. I wanted to love Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, but I just didn't. And it took me a couple weeks to figure out why. And then I ended up doing a blog post about it on my medium account because i was just like oh i know what the problem is you ignored the matriarchy that's in place in the comic books in lieu of establishing a weird patriarchy where sabrina's choices are made by men all the time why so i went back and reread the chilling adventures of sabrina comic book uh that the show was most like directly based off of and that's the one from the archie horror imprint by oh pronunciation by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and Robert Hack mm-hmm. and so Roberto also wrote the majority of Afterlife with Archie and he's was like the main one of the main writers and visionaries on Riverdale and he's like the the dude behind a lot of the creative energy at Archie Comics right now and with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina the comic book, uh, it was like a basically like a love letter to seventies horror, but in its own way. Whereas the show did a lot of really obvious visual references to mm-hmm. famous horror scenes or films. Uh, the comic is more like capturing the vibe of a sixties seventies era horror film, and Robert Hack basically. So I was reading that. He was mainly a cover artist when they hired him for Sabrina. And they were basically like, can you do the whole book? And he was like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, I can try. So this dude does everything on Sabrina that's not the actual writing, from what I understand. He does the 
art. He does the covers. He does the coloring. He does everything. And so there's a really cohesive visual style to the whole thing that really creates, I think, for me, the the creepy tone of the story. And the story is very driven by women. The men are like in it kind of as an afterthought. So it was really jarring for me to see the show on Netflix and have like this like priest of night dude be the guy who's like in charge of everything and he's corrupt and uh, Satan is constantly being referenced as being a man and there's just like the the male female struggle is kind of central to it but not in a way that is really resolved and in the comic it's very much like the conflict is between Madame Satan and Sabrina and then like Sabrina's aunts are there but it's very like female centric so for me it was weird that in the show they chose to make it very dude centric in a way I'm like you guys had this like really cool like creepy escapist like female power fantasy that's really warped and twisted and instead you made like a conventional dudes are in power what can women do situation anyway mm-hmm. so uh, read the comic because it's better than the show the end <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah, me this I, week I, read Sabrina no I, I wholeheartedly agree um, I, I've enjoyed the show but I can definitely see those criticisms and I do think the comic handles all that stuff a much much better so yes read mm-hmm. the comic mm-hmm. even if you enjoy the show the comic's better so much better oh, oh my yeah. god uh, what about you, Nick? <laughs> uh, well, first off, in terms of the Sabrina stuff, just to comment on that briefly, um, I haven't seen the show yet, but I did notice that uh, Archie Comics is attempting to capitalize that on some some degree, because when I went to Vault of Midnight, they are selling the first issue of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina for, I think, a dollar? I think it's just a dollar. And of course, it's got the big, as seen on Netflix, you know, you came in here for this, you big dummy sticker on the front of it. It's not sticker, it's it's a design, thank goodness. Uh, so I guess people who want to tap into that, they're making it accessible and they're making it affordable. So that's great. I think that's fantastic. I think that's exactly what you need to be doing if you want to mm-hmm. try to grab people who are interested in the show and bring them over to the books. So kudos to Archie Comics. That's how it's done. So that's great. Well, yeah, I just uh, unfortunately, the people that are picking up that book are going to have to realize that there's not going to be a new issue for several months. Oh, God. Those Archie yeah, I mean, if, if you're lucky, a very strange. Schedule. If you're lucky, yeah. it's a super they come out schedule. whenever. But honestly, <laughs> with the, with the horror comics, I'm willing to wait because the quality is exceptional when it does come out. It's just there's they're not on the regular monthly schedule that we expect from American comics, which honestly hmm. is a very punishing schedule. We should move to the yeah. French method yeah. when books come out once a year and are phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the first part. Yeah. In terms of what I did this weekend, Friday involved moving my sister's cats back to Lansing. Uh, she had some shower tile work done in her bathroom, and they said if you if there's anyone asthmatic in the house, they shouldn't be here. And I was just thinking to myself, it's like, if you're going to say something like that, why don't you just be like, you shouldn't be here, period. Like, this is a weird way to couch. Like, what's going on here? So my sister's cat, one of them's asthmatic, so looked after the cat for a few days, brought it back. 
ended up um, talking with Mike a few days ago, and Mike's like, I'm going to be back in, in Michigan, and I was like, well, I'm going to go get comics on Saturday, you want to meet me? And he's like, no, I have to go to a wedding in Lansing, and I'm like, well, I'm actually going to be in Lansing on Friday, so lo and behold, I walked literally 100 feet from my sister's apartment over to the Lansing Brewing Company and met Mike and Kelly and we had a beer and hung out for an hour or two so that was real unexpected coincidence um so that was cool nice yeah Saturday I got my comics found out my shop is now doing a thing where if you come in and get your comics every week they enter you into a raffle and I think if you also turn in your previews on time you get an extra raffle entry for that so kind of interesting to see shops trying to adapt to the whole i wouldn't say it's a modern problem but i would say i'm seeing a lot more about it on twitter of people just not picking up their polls where you have those Mm -hmm. disgusting pictures being posted on twitter where it's like here's 400 books that someone never came in for you know so nick what's the prize if you win the raffle uh, they have two prizes. I can't remember what gets you what. One of them is like a Captain America omnibus of like the very original Captain America. It's a pretty big book. It looks like 400 pages. Nice. Uh, and the other one is the first. Is it the first or is it all of? Um, it's an omnibus of DC Comics. What was that event called? It was their weekly event. Yeah, the Future's End. Future's End. So, yeah, they're basically raffling off hardcover books. I think they said they're, you know, at least $100, you know, retail value prizes. That's a pretty good raffle. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be in that raffle. Well, I mean, I can send you how to, uh, the rules on how to do it. You might not find it the most efficient. You might find yourself moving again, but uh, (laughs) um, in terms of what I read, I, uh, I got around to reading... Let's see. I have to make sure I get this title right because I'm always mixing up the order wrong on this. It was Predator versus Judge Dredd versus Aliens. Uh, this is the uh, written by John Lehman, penciled by Chris Mooneyham, colors by Michael Atea, version from 2016, which is not to be confused with the fact that we got Predator versus Judge Dredd in 97, Judge Dredd versus Aliens in 03, and we got Predator versus Judge Dredd versus Aliens in 2014, but that was actually a trade which combined those two older stories, and despite it sharing the same name as John Lehman's run from 2016, it's just an anthology collection and is not an actual series. This is why comics are fun, guys. Comics, um, everyone comics why don't why doesn't everyone get into comics just rewind the last 20 seconds um (laughs) it was really fun you end up with like this these backwards wind in the willow sort of like redneck bipedal animals that stumble upon a predator and they take him off to their mad scientist creator and it turns out that he leaves behind a beacon so a whole bunch of his predator bros end up showing up and dreads chasing this guy called archbishop emoji who you know his face is he only like talks in leet speak like wtf lol you know tt you know you know talk to you later whatever and mm-hmm. they all end up on this collision course in the cursed uh what is it called the cursed earth which is sort of like the no man's land of of judge dread uh, a lot of fun layman really gets which what makes each one of these cities each one of these properties work from the stupid city block naming after like C-list celebrities that Mega City One mm-hmm. loves to the just insanely alien hybrids that the alien universe just gets all goofy with. 
he sort of makes all of these quirks and tropes work and he he understands what makes them funny but he doesn't set out to make a funny book which i think is a really important distinction it's it's like b movie funny like the people who made it you know made it very seriously and in earnest but there's clearly stuff you can laugh at um but Nick, I'm I, still I really, stuck on this emoji dude. Like, oh, he's so funny. Dude. I'll have to send you pictures of him. Like, but, he, like did he's it get a, annoying? Did it feel gimmicky? Like your uh, your description makes it seem like I would be annoyed after like three pages. You you don't you don't get a lot of him. You don't get a ton of him. It's mainly him leading an apocalyptic cult of these dudes who have like an upside down grinning emoji face uh, branded onto their forehead. Oh my uh, god! So yeah, it's. <laughs> It's it's very dark, absurdist, like most dread uh, dread stuff should be. So yeah. it, it, it's not overloaded. So it's it's a lot of fun. I like that Layman finds a way to not necessarily make the predators the bad guys, which I think is always a real easy move, and that he really gives Judge Anderson a really big part in the story, which I think is really important because I think Anderson has always been a really good foil to Judge Dread, and sort of mm-hmm. a, a a calming force or an attempt to rein in dreads just out of control you know uh, pursuit of the law or whatever you want to call it so yeah really fun enjoyed that a lot the other thing i'll just briefly say is i read black badge number one finally that's matt kent uh writing tyler jenkins uh drawing hillary jenkins art sorry colors this is the team that brought you grass kings really enjoyed it basically matt kent loves any sort of spy story from super spy to ninjack and now we have boy scouts that are secretly government operatives which makes sense because considering scouting is basically about going to remote places and getting lost it's more or less a perfect cover for (laughs) ending up Mm -hmm. in places you're not supposed to be so uh really enjoyed that book i I think i think it's gonna be really fun and i'm not just saying that because i have like three or four other issues of it piled up so (laughs) <laughs> what what about you paul <laughs> um you know i want to say i did read black badge number one as well and i enjoyed it but it was one of those books i knew immediately was like i'm gonna like this as a trade better so yeah i'm gonna wait yeah. until that comes out um in terms of what i read this week um i've been making my way through uh, a big stack of comics a couple of them really stood out to me that i want to mention here um i did read the green lantern number one this is the new Green Lantern series written by Grant Morrison with artwork by Liam Sharp. Uh, fans of the podcast know I am a, um, for better or for worse, a Grant Morrison apologist. and I, I was, But I was cautiously optimistic about this. Uh, the Green Lantern is a character that, one of the few DC characters that Grant Morrison hasn't really had a sort of lengthy run on or had his take on. So it's kind of, it may, kind of very interesting true. that he's finally getting around to that, you know. Um, he's written Superman, Batman, uh, Wonder Woman. The Flash, so finally he's getting to Green Lantern. Um, but I was kind of hesitant about it because it sounded like he was going back to focus solely on Hal Jordan, hence the title of the book, Ugh, The gross. Green Lantern. Exactly. Hal Jordan, uh, I think, is probably the least interesting character of the canonical <laughs> DC characters. I just, I've he's, never he's found He's basically that the DC equivalent of like the mid level business executive. <laughs> yeah, he's what just a, a really biting but accurate criticism. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly the best way I've ever heard Hal Jordan described. No, I totally agree. Every, anytime I see yeah. a Green Lantern thing and it's not John Stewart or Kyle Rayner, I'm like, what are we even doing here? 
Like I'll exactly, I'll allow exactly. guy in like certain situations, but it's not like bring <laughs> Kyle to the fore. He's an artist. He can be creative as hell with his. He has feelings. Work. There's no room for. No, I'm just kidding. There's absolutely room for feelings <laughs> when it comes to the emotional <laughs> spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, as you, that, yeah, as you were, Hal Jordan, Grant Morrison, <laughs> Hal Jordan. But what's interesting is that even though it is focusing on Hal Jordan, I do like that Morrison, at least in this issue, seems to be playing up the sort of strange sci-fi origins of the Green Lantern mythos. Like the first opening, like, you know, four or five pages, you don't see Hal Jordan. You see an array of very strange Green Lantern core members. You know, there's there's one member who is a virus that infests, like, infects the uh, guy they're chasing. So it's like, yeah, this Green Lantern is just like a microbial virus it. that can, you know, great stuff like that. It's very, very heavy, weird sci-fi. And what's interesting is actually Liam Sharp's artwork, especially in those opening pages, it really reminds me of early 2000 AD. The, his, his artwork style and even the page layouts, it feels like a really early, almost like a dread issue from, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. It was kind of an hmm. interesting twist on that. You know, it has that feel of like a sci-fi underground kind of book. The main thrust of the story, though, is this idea of that Hal Jordan um, is he's led into he's how do I say this? One of the guardians of the universe lets Hal Jordan in on the secret that the book of Oa, which contains all of the knowledge of the Green Lantern Corps, has been edited and uh, pa- passages are missing or have been changed, and the the guardians of the universe don't know how that happened. This is why uh, you set your Google Docs document to comments, <laughs> comments only. Don't put it on edit. Yeah. I realize it's easy to do. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, there's a, a revelation that there's a, a traitor in the midst of the core. So I mean, at least there's a mystery story involved. I think Morrison is going to be doing the sort of Green Lantern as a police procedural thing, which <laughs> everyone's been doing since Jeff Johns. You know, yeah. that's basically how you write the Green Lantern now. Space cop, um, yeah. But they are space which cops. Works for, that's what they, they are. are. Exactly. That's what they, they do. Yeah. Exactly. Procedural so makes I, sense. That was, it totally makes sense. And I like that spin on that, on that, you know, mythos of that, that thing. So, and he, he does, the, Grant Morrison does a thing at the end of the issue like he did with his run on Batman and Robin where the last two pages are basically coming soon in The Green Lantern and it's a bunch of random images without any context. So like, here's what's going to happen in the book. And there's one image where it's, you know, Green Lantern and Green Arrow teaming up. Like, well, of course, he's yes. going to do his greatest hits thing with all the Green Lantern classic stories. So, yeah, needless to say, I'm, I'm all in on this. So, uh <laughs> I thought this might be the one Graham Morrison book I would sit out, but it, it's not looking that way. I mean, I'm all in. So I was I was considering this book. It was on the shelf. I was thinking about pulling the trigger, but I I wanted to hear from you. Just the uh, how 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 loose of a of, of a leash do his editors have on Grant, and how metatextual <laughs> does this book get? Right, it, Wait, it's not there. Building it's not off doing that, any of that so. Paul. Yeah, I have to tell you mm-hmm. since you told me about that. Um, that magician war theory between Morrison right. and Moore. It's like all I can think about and I keep sending it to people. And Yeah, so listeners, so, if you don't know about that, yeah. So Check just out the mini-sode Karen I did about Morrison. Does Morrison's. this Green Lantern issue add to the wizard's duel? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't pick up on any of that. Oh, actually, let me take that back. This might be kind of spoilery, so if you're holding out on this issue and don't want a spoiler, maybe skip ahead a few seconds, but 
in that moment where the guardian of the universe is telling Hal Jordan that the book of Oa has been edited, you see an image of the giant book of Oa. And there is in the middle of the book, a blue hydrogen atom symbol, which of course is a symbol. Oh, I heard this on his forehead. Yeah. So it's playing into the doomsday clock thing where maybe Dr. Manhattan has been secretly editing or changing the DC continuity. Oh, right. So there is that connection to Alan Moore there. So it's made me realize that. The wizard's duel continues. <laughs> it continues. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's a fun book. It's weird in ways I didn't expect a Grant Morrison book to be. So it's not the metatextual weird stuff. It's just more strange sci-fi stuff. So that's I that's I, good. I, I dug it. Is Kilowog yeah. in it? Uh, not yet. I'm sure he'll Aww. show up sooner or later. Zero so. Kilowog points. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Is that your Doesn't criteria for a good favor, lantern but... book, Nick? What's that? Must, ha- must have Kilowog or Must have read. Kilowog. And it must have, uh, what's his name? Like, <laughs> like the squirrel or Badoog. Oh, or- uh, what? Yeah, yeah. The squirrel. And then there's Gnort. His name is like, like, like BDDG or something. I can't remember. <laughs> but it's a squirrel. Yeah. It's a space squirrel. Um, Wait, who's yeah. the dude who looks like a, like a cross between a fish and a chicken? He's like orange and he's got a beak and that oh, little fin on his head. Larflees? Larflees. No, it's no. Tomar. That's Tomar Ray. That dude. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Well, what's you know what? Actually, let's table this discussion for another episode. We'll do a mini <laughs> Let's struggle to name Green Lantern. Let's go through third tiered lanterns later. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, one last book I want to make sure I talk about here because I really, really loved it uh, was Coyote Dog Girl, which is the new book by Lisa Hannawalt who most people at this point probably know as being the person that did the character designs for BoJack Horseman, the Netflix cartoon. So she did all the character designs for that show, the sort of anthropomorphic, you know, half-human animal hybrids. But uh, she's also a cartoonist, and I really liked her two previous books, uh, My Dirty Dumb Eyes and Hot Dog Taste Test. Those books were... They're interesting because they're they're comics, but they're almost like diaries where it's just a random assortment of thoughts that she's illustrated, you know, and written about. So to be sort of just chaotic like a journal or a diary you're looking through very funny um crass at times just a great sense of humor very similar to the show bojack horseman i have a question but this about, new book sorry go ahead paul no ask your question Nick. okay uh this one's maybe gonna make your eyes roll into the back of your head maybe more than normal but i'm still curious um hot dog taste test is that <laughs> yeah. literal in any way that that book, most of the uh, stories or little things in it are about food. So okay. I don't remember if there's specifically a hot dog taste test, but there is discussions of hot dogs and other food in that book. Okay, so. let me just write this down. Not literally about hot... Uh, okay, <laughs> that's not... That's, right. that's another point you're missing. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, so Coyote Dog Girl is actually uh, Hannah Walt's first narrative book. So it's not a diary or a journalistic type or, you know, like a journal. It is a story about a dog girl, half woman dog uh, named Coyote in the Old West. And it's sort of this um, satire of Western tropes where Coyote uh, is attacked by marauders. Uh, She gets shot with arrows and her horse gets stolen. And then the book is basically her being healed by uh, a group of Native Americans and then going tracking down the horse that was stolen from her. It's playing in all these Western tropes, but it's clearly... You know, Hannah Walt's work has a sort of absurdism to it because they're they're hybrid animals, humans, you know, and 
so there's a magical quality to it where it's like these these anthropomorphized animals, but a lot of the book is them just doing regular mundane human tasks. And I like that dichotomy of the sort of strangeness of the character designs and the sort of mon- mo- the the repetition of what they're doing, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of, you know. And so the book actually has elements of her other work in it where there's be pages of like, here's what uh, Coyote has in her inventory or here's her just doing a daily task or here's her feeding her horse, just regular mundane tasks. Um, but it also has this strange way of being sort of a book you can get emotionally invested in, but it's also very absurd. It's also very crass. Uh, I think it has a sort of feminist strain to it, the way Coyote Dog Girl presents herself and the way she acts. And there is a bleakness to it at points. It's it's violent at points I didn't expect it to be violent. So it's this amazing book that I think hits all of these tones in a really satisfying story that's a satire but also stands on its own as a Western. So it's actually one of the best books I've read in a long time. I highly, highly recommend it. Even if uh, you only know Bojack Horseman, I think you'd you'd gravitate to her, her drawing style, which, like I said, is at times very absurd and silly, but has a sort of emotional resonance to it. There's a couple moments where it's just Coyote talking to her horse, and it's like the way you would talk to your pet. And the, the connection between an animal and a human-animal hybrid is kind of an interesting one. So. <laughs> There's a lot to dig out of this book, even though a lot of it is just, you know, images of of a, of a dog girl riding a horse to the Old West. I, I was kind of emotionally moved by it at points. So well, it's worth checking out. I'm just trying to think of when was the last time I heard someone describe a comic as Western? Like, you know, DC every couple yeah. of years pulls out Jonah Hex and does a miniseries. And like, would you would you classify The Walking Dead as a Western in some ways? Like, when was the last time a Western comic was published that was... Like, definitely. Well, not to be like the um actually of, of. I mean, Mike's not here, so I guess someone has to. It's you, uh, Nick, could do it. Dynamite did just, I think, kick off a Lone, Lone Ranger run just a month or two ago. Oh, but they okay. always yeah. do that. That's the pulps. I don't count that. It's Dynamite. I mean, like, it's I mean, Dynamite like Legacy new, books. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're new saying. Western new Western shit. New Western. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That, what what about Copperhead? Yeah. Um, Copperhead is a space yeah. Western. Yeah. But that's space western. I mean, like western western. Like you're describing okay. this dog girl right. like going through the old west, <laughs> <laughs> like full on western aesthetic. Yeah, it's just yeah, interesting because it used to be such a popular subgenre, and now it's like a western comic. Yeah, exactly. I think that's maybe why it stood out uh, in some sense to me because yeah, you don't see those books very often. Even though like back in the fifties and sixties, they were probably the most popular. You know, one of the most popular comic book genres was westerns. So same thing with movies. When's the last time you saw like a new you know, unique Western. But anyway, like three sixteen to Yuma. I don't know. Uh, anyway, like yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so those were the comics we read. Uh, so let's talk about comics we want to read. Uh, comic books come out this week on November fourteenth, and uh, I'm sure there's books we're excited about. Uh, Kara, what are you looking forward to? Okay, so Boom Studios. <laughs> I totally forgot they have the Firefly license now. It was Dark Horse and now it's Boom and Firefly number one comes out on Wednesday. Greg Pack, Dan McDade. I am hyped to learn. This is like <laughs> still flying. I'm a leaf on the wind. Watch how I saw her. This show will never die. I haven't actually watched the show in a few years, but because I was so into it in high school and in college, it's like ingrained in my brain. So even though I haven't actively participated in the fandom, maybe in 
seven years i still very strongly identify as a brown coat so when new comics come out with more backstory about the characters it's on my list i need to read it i have to support this thing that i don't like it's dead i realize it's dead but i still want more (laughs) i still want more and then also i i have such a weird appreciation for aquaman as a character because I think that so many creators who get their hands on him just don't know what to do with him. And mm-hmm. that is the same for comics and for film. I recently watched Justice League for the first time. And oh boy, who, who, yeah. who was that? <laughs> who was that dude pretending to be Aquaman? What is even happening here? I don't even. Anyway, so like my version Christian of Borsky Aquaman. making friends left and right. <laughs> just, so, so like when I think of Aquaman. Like, I grew up watching Super Friends, so, like, that version was pretty generic. But I really think of the Justice League, Justice League Unlimited version from Mm -hmm. the Timverse, where he's got, he's based on the late 90s, early 2000s Aquaman in the comics. He's got the long hair, he's got the mustache, he chops off his own hand to save his son, and then he's got a hook for a hand. And he's kind of gruff, but still he just wants to do the right thing. And he's not always joining up with the Justice League because he's an outsider, but he's not, like, an asshole about it. So I just, I want to see that Aquaman and stuff. And every time I pick up an Aquaman book, I just don't know what's going on or they're not doing interesting things with his ocean powers. So for example, like Paul earlier, you talking about the new Green Lantern book where uh, one of the lanterns is a virus. That's awesome. Let's take that level of creativity and apply it to Aquaman and you would have a killer franchise. I'm just saying. So there's a trade a hardcover trade coming out on the 20th, and I'm talking about it now because I'm not on the show next week, of Aquaman Underworld by Dan Abnett, and I'm going to mispronounce this. I'm so sorry. Uh, Stepan Sajic. And That's I right. am. I got it? Incredible. Yeah. I am so obsessed with Stepan Sajic's art. Like, it, he, he could draw anything, and I would want to look at it because it's just so beautiful. And when I saw that he was doing an Aquaman book that I don't need to trade wait for because I didn't know it was happening and the trade's already out, I'm like, yes, give me this book. I will I will attempt to like the comic version of Aquaman if <laughs> Stefan Stajic is drawing it. I can do this. I can do this. So that's where I'm at you know, for I, comics. I, I, I think I've heard good stuff about the Dan Abnett Aquaman stuff. I haven't read it, but I think it's pretty well regarded. So that might be worth checking out. Um, yes. As for Firefly, I you know, you might have sold me on this book. I've literally watched three episodes of Firefly um, and it did nothing for That's me. That's most of it. But <laughs> I, I, I'm just I, kidding, I mean, hardcore series, fans. Right? I know there's like 12, okay? Calm down. <laughs> but I love Greg Pak and I think Dan McDade is a fantastic artist and a pretty unique pick for that type of that book. So I might give that a flip through at the at the store on wednesday worth a try so yeah yeah uh what about you nick what are you looking forward to uh for me it would have to be bloodshot rising spirit number one i know shocking shocking this is a new run it's written by lonnie nadler and zach thompson and penciled by ken lashley inked by ryan Wynn, colored by diego rodriguez Nadler and Thompson are a writing duo that have worked together a lot. They're sort of up and coming right now, but they did do uh, Come Into Me for Black Mask, which I believe Mike talked about multiple times. 
and they also recently wrapped up a cable run, which I didn't read, but from what I heard, most people felt it was pretty solid, especially considering that, again, from what I've heard from people, cable can be a very, like, paint-by-numbers book a lot of the time, and it still sells, so to have people really just creatively reigniting the flame under that, I guess, was a big deal. Um, the concept of this book, though, not not the most thrilled. They, they're, they're pitching it as discovering the true origin of Valiant's most unrelenting hero. Uh, the writers are going to, quote, open, door, open a door once closed and reveal answers to questions that Bloodshot himself would not would never think to ask, which is kind of weirdly phrased, whatever. Um, it appears it's only going to be eight issues. Uh, these guys don't really seem to know how to sell this, and I think my biggest problem is that I guess I kind of want to know what this means for all of the glimpses that we've seen of his origin story now, here and there, for the past, like, six years. Are we going to validate all of that and sort of tiptoe around it? Are we going to just flush it down the toilet and say that those were false memories? Uh... Like I said, I'm interested because it seems like it's going to be a narrative minefield because you're dealing with pre-established canon. We're dealing with a story that's seemingly just origin only across what feels like maybe too many issues to do it in. It just feels like an uphill battle. So I'm <laughs> I'm interested to see what happens. And for people that are like, oh man, it's not Lemire writing Bloodshot. That's kind of the litmus test for you. Look, look, I'm buying it, okay? Because I, I, <laughs> I, I think they deserve a chance. All I'm saying is like, it's. I think it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough. I think it's hard to do an origin story. I think it's hard to do one where there's so much, like in the same way that Batman, it's tough to do a new Batman origin story. You going to retread or are you going to ignore everything? Cause it's, you're going to do one or the other. And the fact that they're trying to do this in eight issues, I think that's too many. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see. Ken Lashley's art is good though. I saw his art when, they redid Secret Six in 2015, Gil Simone's run, and, and I thought it looked good there. But, I mean, like I said, it, it this just seems like it's going to be a hard thing to do. I don't know. I, th- I think you basically gave a pretty succinct explanation of why I've never been able to get into any Valiant stuff. <laughs> because it seems unwieldy confusing in different ways than, you know, DC is unwieldy and confusing. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like... I don't think this is going to be a jumping on point. I think they're trying to mm-hmm. make it seem like one, but sometimes okay. you just hate it when they're like, we're going to give you the real story, the real origin story behind so-and-so. And it's like, one, haven't you kind of already done that? And two, I'm not that interested. <sighs> He's just right. an albino dude that shoots people. Like, I don't need the past <laughs> stories of him being an albino dude <laughs> that, that shoots people. <laughs> just give me the current ones, you know? <laughs> so, right. right. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, for me, uh, this pick might be obvious, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Uh, this week sees the release of Mr. Miracle number 12, the final issue of Tom King and Mitch Garrett's run on Mr. Miracle. Uh, probably my favorite Jack Kirby character. I, I'm going to say that with a question mark, but I'm pretty confident that that's one of my favorite Jack Kirby creations is Mr. Miracle. And I've really loved what King and Garrett's have done with this book. And uh, if you've read issue 11, it ends on a very strange cliffhanger. And I think that King is uh, much like the title character. It got one final trick up his sleeve for this last issue. And I can't wait to see what it is. Um, are either of you caught up on this book? Should I reveal what happened at the end of the last issue? Or Give me the I have not read 11, but <laughs> I don't 
care. It doesn't bother me. Um, <laughs> okay, there's a lot of stuff in eleven that I that I think I, I won't touch on. Basically, the the last moment of the book, which I think is the weird uh, Tom King tipping his hand on what's going to happen in issue twelve, is you have Metron show up mm-hmm. at the end of the book, and he tells Scott Free. Uh, where you are is not where you're supposed to be. Something to that, uh, paraphrasing what he's saying. Mm. He's, saying he's not where he should be. And then you turn the page, and the last two pages, a double-page spread of the current DC Rebirth Justice League and assorted characters like jumping towards you, like flying towards you. Mm. So basically implying that this series has been taking place in an alternate reality or another Earth or it was a dream which seems like kind of a cop-out, and I don't think King is going to be that obvious. So I can't wait to see what the twist is in this last issue, like how he gets there. Man, that asshole you know? just gets that time-traveling chair, and he just thinks he gets to run around and be all <laughs> cryptic and bullshit. Like, say what you mean, you know? Jeez. Uh, well, yeah, feel, Metron I, is a... yeah. What an, he's an asshole. He really is. He's just... <laughs> There's a real challenge for any writer. Make him not a total dweeb. Uh, just a know-it-all well, I don't dork. Think you, I don't think you can, and I, you can. Well, I don't want to get too deep into <laughs> that. Because I've been, I've been going back and rereading the original Kirby stuff, and like I think Kirby very intentionally makes Metron an unlikable character. Yeah, he falls between like you have the you have you know New Genesis and Apocalypse. Obviously, one's good, one's evil, and Metron falls in the middle, and it's maddening. It's like why doesn't he align with one or the other? And it kind of makes him a frustrating character. And I think that's on purpose. So. Sure. Anyway. I did see that oh. apparently uh, Garrett's drew the entire like comedy bang bang team into the final issue. Have you seen this? Oh no, that's interesting. Yeah, like okay. as like because I guess he was listening to a lot of their programs a lot while he was drawing, and so as a thank you, he penned them into the final issue. I guess spoilers. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, if, you, if you weren't expecting to see Scott Ackerman, I didn't want to see Scott. Circle. I didn't know Scott Ackerman was going to show up in issue twelve, and now you've ruined it. Okay. <laughs> well, Adam Scott's there too, so now I ruined it twice. Okay. There you go. Oh boy. Well, mm-hmm. that gives me something to look forward to. I love both those guys. Yeah. So, um. Yeah. So I'm excited for this book. I, I I think this has been one of the best series in recent memory, and and it's a book that I definitely think deserves a reread, especially once I'm done rereading the original Kirby stuff I'm gonna go back and read this whole series from beginning see how it holds up so yeah good stuff so that's where we are with books coming out this week um let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll answer your burning questions how about that sounds good So before we get to our main discussion for this episode, which is, of course, answering your burning questions about comic books and uh, pop culture in general, uh, we have a few announcements to make. First one, uh, if you're listening to this on Wednesday the 14th, that means it's the new issue of our sort of quarterly I Read Comic Books zine is available. So you can head over to our website, ircbpodcast.com slash zine to download a free copy or buy a physical copy. I think it's five bucks. It's well worth it. There's some great stuff in there, as always, so check that out. And um, also want to make sure we give a shout-out to one of our Patreon supporters, James. Thank you so much for being a supporter of the show through Patreon. Um, If you're not a Patreon yet or Patreon patron, head over there to our Patreon page to give us some bucks, and you'll get a shout-out on the show, plus some bonus stuff. We'll tell you about that at the end of the show. But thank you, James. We really appreciate it. 
So, um, Nick and Kara, we have some questions here, a couple from Greg, who submitted questions to us via Twitter. They're good questions, so I want to make sure we uh, take some time to answer both the questions from Greg here. Uh, first one he has is, what publisher do you think has the best chance of one day joining the big three of Marvel, DC, and Image? Um, anybody have a thought on this? How are we defining big three, like in terms yes. of depth of bench, in terms of circulation numbers, in terms of awareness? In terms of like, on-base our- percentage, basically, is what I usually... <laughs> <laughs> I, so, yeah, I think there's a couple of different ways you could look at this. And I think that's what's interesting. Um, I think you look at percentage of market share, uh, which is probably the easiest way to kind of define who's the most popular publisher. Um or you could look at, like you mentioned, the sort of depth of the bench that is, you know, sort of the most interesting and creative publisher out there. And I have the same answer for both of those. I think IDW, um, maybe not will be in the same league, but will eventually be number four of the of those. That makes sense? I I mean, I understand. To a point. Uh, I don't a agree, point. but... <laughs> I mean, I I see where you're going with that, Paul, but the problem with IDW is the majority of their bench is franchises and licensed properties. They don't actually own any of the characters that they're doing. DC and Marvel have their characters that they own. Image is creator-owned. IDW is creating new stuff from existing properties. So I don't think they can ever hit the, the level of big three publisher or if they did it would look very different from these other brands and i think that's an interesting point because i i think that i mean dc and marvel have their established universes that's kind of the main driving point of most of their publishing but image doesn't have that anymore it used to when it first started but now it is just sort of a a creator-owned outlet and uh as far as idw goes i did look up the numbers and idw is currently fifth right now the top four are marvel dc image and dark horse um, that's as of June of this year, and then RDW's fifth in terms of market share. But I mean, the difference between the top three and the next four and five—it's it's a huge difference in terms of market share, obviously, percentage-wise. With IDW, though, I think you do have a lot of uh, franchise and licensed books. But you know, we had the recent announcement that Marvel is going to be, you know, basically. Um, lending them the license to do Star Wars books. They're going to be lending them uh, licenses to do young adult or uh, children's takes on Marvel characters. So getting more licensed stuff, but it's going to be a bigger audience, I think, for that stuff. And IDW has recently launched their Black Crown imprint, which is doing a lot more creator-owned stuff like Assassinistas, the new book from David Laffam, Lodger, which I really enjoyed. So they they are branching out into more creator-owned stuff. So I think that there's an opportunity for them for, for growth in that aspect of their publishing you know, branch. I th- so you were saying Dark Horse is currently number four? Yeah. In terms yeah. of market share? I'm not share? sure how. Right, yeah. right. Because my impression of Dark Horse is they've just been hemorrhaging money-making properties over the last few years. And obviously Star Wars was, was the big loss, but... When, when I think of Dark Horse, I would think of Star Wars and I would think of Hellboy. Mm-hmm. So in that, they're kind of like a bigger version of Vertigo. Like if you had asked me what my impression of Vertigo was a couple <laughs> years ago. Because they're edgy and moody. Said, <laughs> no, I would have said Fables and some other stuff. And so Dark Horse yeah, is now like yeah. Hellboy and some other stuff. But it's a whole publisher, right. not an imprint. So it's like, is that sustainable? It's almost like... 
HBO has a good thing going with Game of Thrones, but it recognizes that once that's gone after this year, they are going to need to keep making engaging content to get people still subscribing to their service. So they've been branching out on different uh, shows and films and documentaries a lot more than I think previously because they know they're going to lose that like title card. So it's like, okay, Dark Horse, you have Hellboy, but what else do you have? Are you diversifying? Do you have more stuff? Or in a couple of years, is IDW going to be number four and someone else is going right. to creep into number five, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. So I, I did look up the numbers uh, here and we have Marvel is about 40% of the market. DC is about 30 Image is right around 10%, and then Dark Horse and uh, IDW are both about 3.5% each in terms of market share. So, I mean, that's a big difference. So I think it's going to be tough for any publisher to get into the top, to be to com- be competitive with the top three. But like you're saying, I think Dark Horse is hemorrhaging titles, whereas IDW is kind of doing some interesting stuff, which is why I kind of pick them to be, you know, among, uh, at least join the top four, you know, in the future. Hmm, interesting. Uh for me, I, I I think I think IDW is showing a little more care recently when it comes to their franchise properties, and I think that's important. And of course, Black Crown does indicate that they are trying to get into original content, um, and they have made an effort to try to do a shared universe uh, to some extent. I just can't remember the name of it, but there was a oh, right. GI yeah. Joe Transformer mask action man big massive crossover thing that they did which was interesting i think what what i do like is that idw does seem willing to really allow for creative freedom within the franchise properties and i think that's an important nuance that needs to be discussed in terms of what they've allowed to happen with ninja turtles especially the tmnt universe offshoot and some of the fun things like the the ghostbusters crossover and things like that on top of something like transformers versus gi joe uh, it is true that idw is is mainly and mainly might be understating it is mainly franchise properties but there's Mm -hmm. a creative freedom there that i think frequently goes unappreciated beyond that i totally agree with you paul it it is sort of a little asterisk that people forget about that between star wars adventures and the licenses to the disney uh, donald duck mickey mouse a lot of the um european import comics Mm -hmm. having access to those and also having access to the marvel uh, the kids version of marvel comics uh, i think that can't be understated and i think in some ways we haven't really seen what those books the breadth of what those books can do yet Um, for me, I actually, uh, like it's, of course it would be tempting to say something like Valiant, but I think Valiant's aspirations right now are more about what it can do to emulate the Marvel and DC cinematic universe in terms of like, I think their, their eye on the ball is basically that's their goal, which obviously I have problems with. Uh, and that's not just from someone who's seen the Bloodshot logo for the movie and good God, that better change. It's it's gross. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like someone's eighth grader had a free copy of Photoshop and they just went to town, okay? Um, <laughs> it's not good. Uh, so, uh, but, but Valiant has never really dreamed about, uh, nor have they sort of, I guess, dreamed is wrong. They've never had delusions about putting out 40 or 50 books because everything is about very tight, careful uh carefully timed continuity Uh, for me honestly i would say dark horse because i think 
Star Wars, and I know I'm beating a dead horse on this issue, but I think losing Star Wars was actually the best thing that's ever happened to them. I think it really mm-hmm. forced them to take a step back and go, like, we have to take the car off cruise control now. Like, we have to make moves that make money because they were basically sitting on Star Wars and I'm sure it was generating money, but it's not like they were really getting creative with it until like at the end when they were like, oh shit, we're going to lose this. Brian Wood, do whatever you want for 16 issues and Matt can go to like a Han Solo heist story and and they did, but... um, Mm -hmm. So uh, when I look at Dark Horse, I'm sort of looking at things that they've done in the last couple years like Rebels, Ether, Briggsland, Department H, Dead Orbit, uh, The Black Hammer Universe by Jeff Lemire, Recently, they've been making some inroads with some other franchises, like acquiring Stranger Things. Uh, Brian Wood's Sword Daughter is fantastic. Uh, Their uh, Avatar, Avatar The Last Airbender stuff has been really popular. Um, So I I think they're making some moves in both camps. I think they are sort of re- valuing their franchise properties and, and attempting to do to really put quality teams on them and by that i mean just attaching mm-hmm. brian wood to all of the books <laughs> he wrote their terminator he wrote uh, he's like he's writing robocop for for boom he's he you know he's writing an aliens book another one so i i i think dark horse has potential i do wonder how much room they have left to grow i feel like it, mm-hmm. they've gotten they've paid more attention to what they have but in terms of just pure acquisitions and growth i think a lot of that's really been in terms of like basically the matt kent and jeff lemire show between ether and department h and black hammer like that's where the growth is coming and don't get me wrong i think black hammer is expanding into something large but with a level of quality control that you never see with something that large um for me, honestly, if I were to pick someone else outside of this, and I know this is going to maybe seem a little bit weird, but I would actually say Boom, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're they're trying to fire on all levels. They're trying to put out books for kids. They're putting out books for adults. They're getting their hands on some franchises, but they're not obsessed with it. They've clearly delineated with, I think it's called Boom Box and their other lines. You know, <laughs> these are for kids. These aren't for kids. And I think that helps. Uh, and then, of course, they're doing original stuff like Grass Kings and Black Badge and things like that, where creators have a little bit more room to to shine. And I think they're still growing, so uh, we we don't really know for sure. But I I would I would put some money on them. It might be a while, but <laughs> all right, all right, I can see that. So, Kara, do you have a if you're a betting person, who are you who are you betting on? Which horse do you have in the race here? Okay, which, so which dark horse do you have? I, in the- <laughs> I, I want to reframe the question a little bit because sure. if we're talking about market share, mm-hmm. we're we're ignoring the the book publishers, the traditional book publishers who are also right. producing graphic novels. The Scholastic mm-hmm. Graphics imprint has all the Raina Telgemeier books and this uh, series called Dogman that like. I like I work at a school and all the children are reading this book. Wasn't that Dave Pilkey? Yeah. It's Captain like, Underpants guy. Uh, yeah, like okay. uh, yeah. this is what the kids are reading. Raina Telgemeier is releasing a new book called Guts next year. They're doing a first printing of a million copies. That wow. is not okay. a number that we get in the the monthly comic book market and the comic book industry constantly ignores these numbers from the traditional book publishers 
why i have no idea it's a graphic novel it's Mm-hmm. it's sequential storytelling with art and words this counts this is where the money is being made is these books that are like one-off stories directed at the youth market and scholastic is like they're selling like Raina telgemeier alone the number is she's more than 15 million books in print like that's ridiculous mm-hmm. that's an insane mm-hmm. number uh in terms of thinking of like when i think of marvel and dc i think of those universes as a whole as opposed to individual titles so totally ignoring the numbers the companies that match that in terms of potential of world building and universe building are valiant and archie comics and for multiple reasons neither of those will hit that market share anytime (laughs) soon but the potential is there because both of those properties have universes that they can build upon that people have awareness of that they are exploring multiple ways of sharing those stories whether it's from film on the valiant side or television shows on the archie side Mm -hmm. they're doing interesting stuff with what they have it's just kind of like what nick said earlier they don't have the resources to go against a Marvel or a DC, which at this point are owned by very wealthy international corporations who can kind (laughs) of back up those IPs. Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, that's a really good point you brought up about the, um, no scholastic and the young adults and kid book market. Cause I really think that's where the future of publishing is in general, but specifically like comics and and graphic novels. So anybody who can capitalize that, which is one of the reasons I picked IDW because I think them producing young adult content like Marvel uh, uh, from the Marvel franchises and Star Wars and Disney, they're branching into that market as well. So, yeah, interesting point. Um, that kind of, uh, I think, leads into Greg's other question that he has here, which is, uh, he says, I know the show has strong opinions that comic books would be better if the industry shifted focus to trades over single issues. Uh, it's obviously a co- topic we've discussed a lot. And he asks, do you think that would benefit all styles of comic books or maybe some types over others? And I think that's what we're talking about here is I think kind of the future of publishing specifically for comics is going to be in the young adult uh, one-off OGNs and that type of stuff. And I think obviously that's better suited for, for trades and collections and selling books through, you know, traditional selling comics through traditionally bookstores versus, you know, comic book retailers. That's going to benefit. I think this new brand of young adult and kid based focused comics. What about you guys? What do you think? I think that the the problem with the current U.S. comic book industry is that the focus is so heavily on serialized storytelling. And you think, okay, well, what else in the media is like ongoing serialized storytelling basically until it doesn't become financially viable anymore? And it's soap operas or professional wrestling are the ongoing serialized stories you have to kind of jump in and know that you're not going to know all the backstory right away and it's going to take you an effort to figure out exactly what's going on and you're going to miss stuff and that is just not something that everyone is interested in so i'd argue that's most of tv right now too i'd argue that tv is really in an area in an in an era that is 
bar by and large serialized storytelling right now but, you know the days of seinfeld the, and everybody loves raymond are gone. i agree with you but i also think that a lot of shows even if they have episodes of the week they'll have an over they'll have an arc for a season if they're doing it right mm-hmm. and maybe an overarching show arc if they've planned ahead so i think comics needs more uh like the the graphic novel concept is that you can pick up that graphic novel and there is a more or less self-contained story which is super accessible to any reader who wants to pick it up so i think if there's more of a balance of stories that are self-contained or like maybe they're tangential to the universe that they're in and if you know other stuff that's going on in that universe that's great but it's not totally necessary and i think that kind of format much like uh, some television, if you're doing a shorter season than the standard 22-episode U.S. season, which I think is ridiculous, it forces you to be more concise with your storytelling. So instead of, uh, for example, imagine if uh, Marvel Civil War or DC's Infinite Crisis had to be a graphic novel or even two as opposed to the multiple book multiple like thousands of pages things that they were it would have been a cleaner story because it would have had to have been because you need to be able to pick it up and know what was going on like i'm thinking x-men age of apocalypse if that was forced into let's say even (laughs) even a hundred even like a hundred or 200 pages that would have been tighter storytelling because the publisher would have known okay we're putting out this book as Uh, as like a book so it has to be coherent and we can reference other things that are happening but the story has to make sense on its own and I just think it would make storytelling as a whole in comics stronger if there was just that awareness that not everything had to be and you need to know everything that's going on in this universe and it will just keep going. And at some point you'll get fatigued of buying all this stuff because we're just going to keep doing the same stuff over and over again. That's why I like graphic novels because I know I can pick it up. I can enjoy the character and I don't have to worry about the other crap. Yeah. I think what it comes down to, I think that's the, what, you know, Greg's question here is hinting as like that works for some narrative stories and it works for some readers I still prefer buying single issues. I'm always going to like buying single issues, going to my shop every week for certain types of, of stories. You know, I hinted earlier that I read the first issue of Black Badge and I thought this is going to work better as a trade for me. And I think that's something that comes down to a personal preference at times. So I think that the industry is always going to have single issues. Foppies are monthly comics are always going to be a thing. Just I think that's so entrenched in most comic book fans. But I think there are a lot of newer readers that are coming into comics where it's not going to work for them. So having publishers shift their focus to trades in OGNs and standalone stories is smart for the industry, but there's always going to be a segment of the readership, old white guys like me, or just old comic bands like me, who want their monthly single issues and are never going to give them up. So I don't know if that's ever going to go away. And I don't think it needs to go away. I just think there needs to be more of a balance and more consciousness in the storytelling. Like, okay, we're going to have these serialized stories, but maybe for an event, that's a trade. Or maybe for uh, a new creative, like, or or even um, uh, the book that you were telling us about earlier, Black Batch, that you just referenced again. Why does that have to come out as floppies? Why not just give mm-hmm. them give the creative team more of an advance and go direct to trade? 
Like that's a book that doesn't need to be a floppy first. Well, I, I think the counterpoint to that, and I think this is one of the one of the reasons that I think there's that people still advocate for floppies and a lot of them are very small and sort of selective ones, but I think one of the one of the ones is just being able to sort of test something out and decide whether it's not for you for like three bucks. Yeah. And I realize that's yeah. a very small sort of niche um, benefit of floppies, but I do really like when I can just grab a number one and for three dollars say yes or no, as opposed to buying a trade for fifteen or sixteen. Especially now that images seems to be very content charging between fifteen and seventeen for volume ones these days, um, and saying that this isn't for me. So I think that mm-hmm. there's I, I like that part of floppies. I do think that's good. Um, I also uh, just really. I mean, one of the other things with floppies, and this is obviously a leave it or take it, and we've talked about this before, is the whole collectability aspect of them, having something that you can get signed or having something with a special cover that you identify with. And of course, again, that's not something that everybody wants. That's not something that everybody needs, but uh, some people want it. And that's, you know, just another, just another thing. Um, I mean, beyond that, I'm just thinking about how mad I am at the pre-order system because then. Oh, it's so it's so goofy and wild and crazy, and and it obviously it not only stresses out consumers, but it stresses out shop owners as well. You know, I have to buy thirty of this book to get one of this book to get two more of that book to get this cover. Um, Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, one of the other small kind of ineffable, stupid little pleasures I like about floppies that just goes down to just general consumption of media these days is just that there's no more waiting or sort of the idea of a cliffhanger where you where you have a week or two to just sort of think about something or a month and be like gee I wonder what they're going to do with this I wonder what's going to happen and maybe I need to get back in my rocking chair and go drink my prune juice but like now it's like all 13 <laughs> episodes you know cram them in your throat now and just just love the gluttony yeah. of current mass media consumption i don't know like i said i'm gonna go uh eat my tums and calm down over here but uh <laughs> no, yeah i think that i think that's where we're coming back to this point that i, I there are certain genres where that works you know i, I think the superhero genre is a sort of you know episodic by nature genre which is why you know by and large i kind of prefer the cw tv shows versus the netflix marvel tv shows where one is written as a sort of episodic sort of the, every episode has familiar beats you know every episode has a sort of similar you know feel to it but if you watch them back to back to back it gets very repetitive Whereas the Marvel shows kind of feels like one big movie that's been cut into episodes that's hard to sit and watch. I can't sit and watch that much TV in one sitting. So I kind of like little digestible chunks. And I think it takes a lot of skill, you know, to do that, to make a condensed chapter of a story that tells a bigger arc, but has its own sort of focus. And I think floppy comics, you know, 20 pages, there are a lot of writers that I think work better of that. I've only got 20 pages. I have to fit everything into this. You know, I, I, that focuses some writers in ways that other writers need a big book to tell a big story. So I guess to answer Greg's question here is I don't think the industry should ever shift one way or the other completely, but having a marketplace now where both are equally accessible to people is probably the healthiest for the industry, for the, for the genre. 
for the medium. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I'm glad we, once again we fixed comics. That's, that's, that's <laughs> good to know. So um, we got a couple more random questions here. These are uh, sort of comic book related. Let's let's maybe run through a couple of these. Um, what is your go-to podcast uh, aside from this one? Of course. What what are you guys listening to these days? I have a confession to make. <laughs> okay. Oh boy. I <laughs> don't listen to podcasts. Mm, okay. Like Kara doesn't all. even know she's on one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was just talking to you guys on the phone. What is this? Yeah, jokes no, on you. I, I, you know, I've I've been podcasting for five years now, four years, something like that. But and so people always say, "Oh, well, you podcast, so you must know about all these other podcasts." And I'm like, "No, I don't." And <laughs> I've. I've tried listening to st- some and some I I do think they're excellently produced and there's really engaging storytelling but for for me most most podcasts are too long and I lose interest or I'm just never really in the mood for them like I I like the idea that I can go out and find a podcast uh, at this point about whatever niche thing I would possibly want to listen to and be able to listen to that. But for me, it's just not my preferred form of media for listening to. Like I have, I have a limited amount of time in my life and (laughs) I, I only have so much to do. And like currently I'm going through a lot of audiobooks on my commute. And when I get home, I want to like, I'm that Netflix binger or I want to watch a movie or I want to read a book and go through like the mountain of comics that I have with me that I still have not read. There's other stuff that I am more engaged by than finding the like great podcast that I want to listen to. Right, right. I think, yeah, you're speaking to, I think, a pretty common problem. At least I, I recognize that where there's just literally so much content that it becomes as much a part of editing or finding what you have time for versus doing the thing, finding the stuff you really like. You know what I mean? Yeah. That said, I I will take this, this opportunity to to plug a a friend of mine who used to work at my now defunct LCS and it's uh, Anthony Desiato's flat squirrel productions podcasts. And he's been doing some really interesting things in terms of uh, traveling across the country to speak to different comic book retailers about how they run their store and what their uh, vision of comics and the comic industry are and he's currently working on a documentary about that journey as well. And uh, his podcasts periodically feature the uh, the erstwhile owner of my now defunct LCS. So I always enjoy that also. So like my, okay. my personal connection to that show makes me interested in it. And uh, so like if you have to say like, Kara, what podcast should I listen to? I would probably point you to that one as, in addition to this one, of course. Okay. Yeah. Good plug. Um, Nick, do you, uh, do you engage in the, uh, podcasting platform or a uh, medium? Yeah. Yeah. Probably too much <laughs> for those of you who have, who, for those of you who remember the, um, the true crime episode, 
I listed off more than a couple, probably a little too fast and showed my hand in terms of uh, my my affinity for this. But uh, if I had to pick one, at least of that sort of subgenre, because obviously this whole like true crime podcast thing is just blooming into a... Uh, Ugh, it's flourishing to a point where the tragedy is it's it's tough to figure out what's good and what's bad because there's just so much there now that it's like, I'm not going to sift through this. But mm-hmm. honestly, if you're looking for something like that, I would say Someone Knows Something that's produced by the Canadian Broadcasting Company is absolutely fantastic. Each season is a different case. Uh, there's sort of a pacing and a level of, of compassion and, and respect for for people who have dealt with these sorts of situations in their lives that you don't always get from American true crime podcasts that are, you know, I got to get the scoop and I got to give out the lurid details and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and it's, it's very, like, I don't want to make a blanket statement about Canada, but it just exudes this, like, slower-paced, much more thoughtful... Um, really well-hosted podcast about these different incidents, um, one of which was about the whole... I can't remember the name of... I think there was a name for the group, but it's basically the incident upon which the film Mississippi Burning was based during the Hmm. civil rights riots. Um, Well, the civil rights movement in general, I guess you could say, amongst everything else. And it has to deal with um, an instance where they thought they had found those three people... Um, that had gone missing, the civil rights workers, but had found, uh, stumbled upon a different crime, uh, and it goes into that whole story. Uh, so I really enjoy that. Uh, in a very different vein, I would I would say that while a lot of people are quite familiar with the podcast My Brother, My Brother and Me, and they now have a graphic novel that was number one on the New York Times bestseller charts and all this other stuff that they're doing, they have a fantastic lesser-known podcast called The McElroy Brothers Will Be in Trolls 2, and it's all about their attempt to leverage what fleeting level of internet celebrity they have and the great relationship that they have with Lin-Manuel Miranda to get themselves into the film Trolls 2. So it's basically them like calling up their agent and harassing him on the phone and asking him questions about what they should or shouldn't do and then revealing that they've already gone ahead and talked to the people that he says they shouldn't be and it's just uh it's it's wild and it's goofy and and it's it's a lot of fun. So hmm. interesting. Um, uh, for me, I, I kind of fall, I think somewhere in the middle between, uh, Kara and Nick here where I, there's a small select group of podcasts I listen to. Um, I don't branch out very far into that field, but there's a few that I, I am a dedicated listener to, uh, one of which is the wait what podcast, which is about comic books and pop culture. It's co-hosted by Jeff Lester and Graham McMillan, who's a comic book journalist and writer. And that is a great podcast. Each one episode is about two and a half hours long. Because it really is you're just listening to a conversation between two longtime friends talking about what comic books that they've read. So it's similar to this show, uh, but they discuss a lot more 70s Marvel than we do. So um, it's very funny, and it's uh, definitely you know, a place where I've heard about a lot of great comics that I've gone on to read and, and really enjoyed. So I would highly recommend the Wait What podcast if you want some more comic book podcast content. Uh, similarly, there's a brand new podcast that just started that I've, I've really enjoyed. It's called uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe, and that's uh, Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg, the cartoonists, and they're doing a read-through of old issues of Wizard Magazine. Uh, 
for those of you that are younger, Wizard Magazine was basically the only source for comic book news and reviews uh, in the 90s when I started reading comics. Um, so Wizard Magazine was basically, uh, it had a price guide in the back so you could find out how much your copy of Youngblood number one was worth that week or that month. And then uh, it had news and reviews, interviews with creators. And as a, a young teenager getting into comics before the internet really became this, the, a main source of information, Wizard was a place where I learned about comics. The first place I heard about Watchmen or the first place I heard about Love and Rockets or Bone or Madman, these comics I go, went on to really love, was from Wizard Magazine. So they're doing a read-through of old issues. And what's great is they're doing it as a video podcast on YouTube as well. So you can see them flip through the issue and you know they'll say like, oh, let's talk about this particular comic and they'll pull out their comic from their collection. So that's a really fun one if you want some more comic book related podcast uh, content as well. Um, one last question, maybe let's see here. How do you select what comic book paraphernalia you buy? And assume by comic book paraphernalia, they were, we mean comic book related stuff. That's not specifically comic books themselves. So do you buy any of that stuff or any interest in that? I would get um, those like little statuettes, those maquettes, maquettes. Okay. When yeah, maquette. when they were th- characters that I liked and on like super sale, and the last like uh two to three years ago, I went on like this huge toy buying binge of just like okay. any. <laughs> and um, there were a couple vendors at New York Comic Con who always have some pretty good like used toys where they're like a few bucks a pop. And they're yeah. they're not collectible at all, but they're just like like I dug up about eight Justice League Unlimited superhero action figures that I got for like ten bucks, nice. and I was like, yes. But honestly, like I was just saying, how I I've moved four times in the past year, I'm just like carrying around this little bag of plastic that I never have enough shelf space for, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm looking at this going, God, I'm just killing the environment with all this. This is nonsense. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm in a similar boat where it's uh, I'm trying to limit how much, you know, actual physical stuff I keep around, you know, because there's a limited space and I hate moving. So um, I often joke that my main hobbies are collecting comics and records, which are the two most inconvenient forms of media that are possible and also the heaviest. So I don't have much time for other comic book paraphernalia and stuff, but I will confess I do have a couple Funko Pops, and if I do see some anything, anything that has the sort of old DC Jose Luis Garcia Lopez like character designs, like a T-shirt or a coffee mug, I'm kind of a sucker for that stuff. Like especially that something anything that captures the aesthetic that I remember from being a kid. So I'm always a sucker for that. Um, Nick, what about you? Do you collect anything else? Not, not really. Like, I feel like first off, a lot of that stuff is a little overpriced, and, and the other part of it is one, like I don't have <laughs> the extra income for it, and two, as you said, I, I don't have the space. Like, my comics are already occupying way too much room way too many shelves like you add in all the bags and boards and it's even bigger and it's like i i don't i don't i don't have any room for anything beyond that um yeah it's uh i've the comics take up enough space and the comics take up enough money uh i, I don't need the <laughs> extra stuff 
except on occasion. <laughs> sure. Several sure. fleeting occasions here and there, you know. Special <laughs> con variant covers, things like that. But I like it doesn't it doesn't drift into like one hundred dollar action figures, the ones that you see at like Barnes and Noble where they're in like the glass cases over by the yeah. all the cards and the board and the board games and it's like this is a hundred dollars and I'm like, okay. That's but great. So shiny, Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I that's know. So cool. Yeah, I guess that, that is kind of interesting because I think the actually if we're talking about collecting single issues, that's kind of a a form of collecting paraphernalia in its own in its own regard, especially if you're doing variant covers. Um ideally I would have I'd be financially secure enough to start collecting original artwork. I think that that'd be something mm. I get into, mm. but that's a that's not gonna happen anytime soon. So <laughs> I get makeup um, when they do makeup. Oh yeah. Like okay. a few years ago, Archie did a collaboration with Mac cosmetics and I've got yeah. that eyeshadow palette from the Betty line. And, nice. uh, there's Is it good. Oh, uh, why? Uh, I mean, it's Mac cosmetics, Nick. It's really fucking good. I was going to say, you're going to have to finish that beyond it's Mac cosmetics because for someone sure. like me, I'm like, finish the sentence because this means okay. nothing. <laughs> or, or like, uh, OPI, nail polish did an amazing spider-man line and that has some of the best nail polish names and colors that i've had ever like one of the colors was named my boyfriend scales walls like that's it's just really dumb but i thought it was so cute or sure. um i cannot espionage cosmetics does uh nail wraps and i've got like a set of the wicked and the divine ones stuff like that so it's like if you have a property that I'm interested in and you make makeup out of it, I will buy that makeup. Like, <laughs> that's that's what's happening. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, you hear heard it here first, so uh, get on that. Make your uh, makeup. Make your makeup. There we go. <laughs> um, can I super quickly go back to the podcast thing? Because yes, I because yeah. re- I realized I totally spaced that I've actually been a guest on another podcast that I've really enjoyed being a guest on is with my uh, former co-host over on the Comixologist podcast. Uh, Matt Kolowski has a podcast out called Link in Bio. And he's it's basically just like him having conversations with people about stuff that they really like. Um, So like I've been on it a couple times. Tia from this podcast has been on it a couple times and it's really great because Matt's like I don't like I don't care if I like the thing do you like the thing I will then absorb that thing and we'll talk about it so like Tia made him watch a ballet and then like (laughs) and like talk to him through like this ballet and it's just like really interesting that he's he's taking this uh like he's like the everyman protagonist taking you through the world of everyone's like, like secret passions. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds great. I'll have to check that one out. So cool. Well, if, if you're listening to this and you have some podcast recommendations for Kara or the rest of us, be sure to let us know on Twitter. Uh, of course you can find us all on Twitter. You can find Kara at Kara S Zam. You can find Nick at death star plans with a Z. You can find me at Oh, hi Polly. And you can find the podcast at IRCB Podcast. 
We have a Goodreads group with weekly threads, and you can always visit our website for all things IRCB at ircbpodcast.com, which includes our pronunciation guide of creator names that are difficult to pronounce, like all the ones I stumbled over in this episode, (laughs) and our merchandise, including our zines, issue four of which is out this week. We would also encourage you to head on over to iTunes and rate and subscribe to our show or use whatever podcatcher you uh, prefer to subscribe to our show. The more listeners we get, the better rankings we have, the higher profile show we have, and the easier it is for people to find us or stumble upon us on those sites. We would also encourage you to go ahead, email the show, ircb at destroythesibe.org, whether that's with your podcast recommendations or thoughts on the show or just telling us how much you enjoy the program we would love to hear from you we would also encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to our patreon that's patreon.com forward slash ircb podcast we have exclusive audio we give you early access to episodes you get access to show notes we have articles tia had um a look at a vault comic a few days ago that's up on there and most recently my ever long uh, treatise on aliens comics just went up i think a day or two ago so there's some cool stuff there for you to check out definitely um infinity stred are the best band in the universe they also do the music for this show xander is the editor of the show and he is the one up mushroom that you need on the last level of super mario world um want to say again thank you to nick and kara for answering the questions thank you for greg uh, thank you to greg for submitting questions for us to answer and thank you for listening until next time be kind and please rewind